there's those times when you're writing something and you get something stuck in your mind that you want to try to make happen. And I think the trick is knowing when to abandon that because something else is right in front of your face that is like it's screaming at you like, dummy, look at me. I'm standing right here. There's a great shot. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In honor of the 74th annual DGA Awards, we're bringing back our annual series of episodes devoted to our popular Meet the Nominees Theatrical Feature Film Symposium. The event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Theatrical Feature Film. This year's nominees include Paul Thomas Anderson, the director of Licorice Pizza, Kenneth Branagh, the director of Belfast, Jane Campion, the director of The Power of the Dog, Steven Spielberg, the director of West Side Story, and Denis Villeneuve, the director of Dune. These talented directors gathered on March 12th at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles for an in-depth discussion of their work with moderator Jeremy Kagan. So please enjoy part one of our Meet the Nominees special and listen to the five nominees share behind-the-scenes details from their films. But my first question for all of you, because this is an audience of directors and directorial team, and I'm going to start with you, Paul, all the way over there. How do you know when you've got it? What I mean by that is you've staged a scene, you've watched it, you've done a number of takes. What is it that gets you to say, we've got it, let's move on? Paul? Um, Well, it's usually... um, when Adam Sumner, my first assistant director, says, I think that's enough now. (laughs) (laughs) By the the way, this has been unfair. This is Paul Thomas Anderson for his movie Licorice Pizza. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) And Denis Villeneuve for Dune. And Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. And Steven Spielberg for West Side Story. And Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. I mean, your films are so wonderful, they speak for themselves. And I know sometimes as we talk as directors and you get asked the questions a similar time, it's not really what you do. What you do is actually make these movies. But it's a valid question. Your AD tells you it's enough. Are there sometimes when you turn to your assistant director and say, yeah, but I need one more? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's like the UN, but, you know, I'm America, really. <laughs> uh, but it, 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 no, I'm, I never, I, I, I mean, sometimes you, sometimes you um, unfortunately kind of whimper away feeling as if something has not, is not right. But um, at its best, you, you feel great confidence uh, in the moment something has happened and it feels good and, and then um, when you're driving home, you hit with that wave of, hang on a second. <laughs> um, where, you know, that confidence and that excitement, now I've got to try and go to sleep tonight and think about it all. And, and then you just get up the next day and do it again. You know how that feels. And where do you position yourself when you're on a take? Where, where are you usually? Uh, you mean physically on uh-huh. the set? Physically, yeah. 
Well, ringside, right? I mean, wherever, whatever is closest um, to the action, I like to be as close as I can to the action, uh, and that the action meaning wherever the actors are. I guess I suppose I'd like, or, or whatever the need is for the scene, the most important thing to me is to be able to be the first thing that they look at when they're done so that they can see me as soon as they finished. I just want to make sure that I can, I think I remember early on um, knowing enough actors who got, who were always disappointed that they had more of a relationship with their camera operator than their director. And they found that very frustrating. And I kind of got in my mind um, at a young age that you should, you should be the first thing that they're, they're able to see so that they can feel um, either support or, you know, or a red flag, even if, if it's not right, but just to be there for them. Right, thank you. Denis, uh, when do you know you've got it? What makes you say we can move on? Um, I, I have no, uh, first of all, it's tough to come back at the Tukum after Paul's uh, was uh, very funny. <laughs> My answer is not funny. I, I, uh, I, it's like... Uh, Doesn't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 uh, there's no rules for me. Sometimes, uh, uh, when you, uh, as we know, when we do the casting right, and, and sometimes uh, it can be after one take. You know, I can uh, if I feel it. It's like a matter of a feeling that it's like uh, if the like if the instrument is tuned. If, if it, there's truth in what I, I received, and uh, so it's like it's a visceral feeling. It's a very deep intuition, and sometimes it can happen after one take. Now, sometimes I cheat. There were, I, I, as on a project, I, I realized sometimes that some actors work better under tremendous pressure. And on Dune, I would not mention the name, but there was one specific actor that I knew that when I wanted to know to get what I wanted, I needed just to say, okay, that's enough, we move. And then he said, hey, what, one, one more, one more. And I said, right, <laughs> I will give it to you. And I knew that will be the take. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And where do you position yourself? Uh, I like to be uh, just uh, under the camera, as close as possible to what the set lens sees and to be, as uh, Paul says, uh, close to the actors as much as possible, when it's possible. Yeah. And when you have a complex shot that I'm sure many of these were, particularly because of CGI responsibilities, how are you checking that besides being next to your actors at that moment? But the thing is that uh, with uh, there's always like we have like monitors, so I can uh, as I'm watching the the, the I'm, uh, with the actor, I can uh, I have always always a monitor with me. Of course, there are some moments where it's not possible, and I'm behind the the, the monitor. But it's always to keep. Uh, uh, I'm trying to keep the sets as intimate as possible, and to be with my monitor if I cannot be beside the camera because it's on a crane, whatever. To be as close as possible to 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 uh, the actors, never never be uh, far away. Yeah, got it. Thank you, Denis. Jane, what about you? When do you know you've got it? When do you know I? You can say, let's move on. Um. Well, what I do is really simple. I just watch, and um, if I start thinking, I know it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about things to correct, or you know, yeah. stuff like that, and I go, okay. So it's like when I'm watching and I'm completely engaged, then I, I, I figure, oh, that worked, you know. And it's sometimes surprising because you have ideas about what you think might or should happen in the scene or in the take, um, and something else quite different happens because the actors are going to surprise you with ways that they interpret it. And yet this very simple sort of just body checking like, oh, yeah, I'm paying attention. 
I'm still paying attention. I'm engaged, you know. Mm. I'm connected to it. I'm not trying to be connected. I just am connected. And so when, once that starts to happen, um, you know, I, I know it's good. I know it's working. And then it's just like, oh, do you want to, you know, like, should we see if we can turn the heat up or mm. change it or, you know, maybe another interpretation of the same thing. And it's like a little consultation with the actors and me. Like quite often they'll say, yeah, I would love some more takes. And I'll say, yeah, let's see what else can happen because they're all amazing <laughs> and um, it's really nice to let them have that sense of being empowered to um, run themselves dry, really. <laughs> and, where, and where do you position yourself mostly? Um, I'd like to sit somewhere comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> like an audience would. Like I try to be the audience in a way, you know, so that I'm not like super with them or, you know, just try to, in my body, tell the truth, let my body tell the truth about what's happening because I, I certainly know that feeling of like, oh, that's amazing, you know, you're so jazzed up that you can't even pay attention except in a really super weird way. <laughs> yeah. And then you think everything's incredible and then you later on see it and you go like, oh, my God. <laughs> you're so bad. Oh, no. <laughs> I always remember that thing that Kurosawa said that um, you really don't or can't tell more than about 65% of what's happening on set. Mm. And it's like um, when you're making clay pots or stuff like that and you put it, you put you know, different colours on them and then bake them and then it, that's, the, that's the kind of um, thing you can't predict. And when they come out, um, how they come out, it, is different than what you imagined and you don't know how that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well spoken, Jane. So I, I really don't think I know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, what about you? When do you know you've got it? And particularly this is different, I think, because of the form, which is a newer form for you. So there may have been different things where scenes are with performers and scenes are with an entire group of singers and dancers. When do you know you've got it? Well, when there's music involved, you know, uh, the music tells you when you've got it because the music essentially, it's either a live performance on set or it's to playback. Mm -hmm. And the music is, is, is mathematically only so long. And when it's, when it's over, it's over. Uh, so that's it. And you, you, you just make sure that if it was playback, we have experts that watch the lips was it in sync and we do and then we, we play back the take to make sure that everybody is in sync. But also the important thing the most important thing is are they acting the music, not just parroting the lip sync, but are they actually performing and soulfully because all the singers all in our movie, everybody sang. We didn't have any ringers that came in. And because they all sang, they're they are passionately singing to the playback. So it's not just they're making their mouths move. They're they're singing as as vocally and as passionately as they did when four of the numbers are done live in West Side Story. There's four numbers that are 100% live to no playback at all. And that's when you kind of know you have it. But with acting, when it's a performance scene, you know, I've, I've discovered, you know, since I've been doing this for a long time, that it's just never fast enough. And it's just never fast enough because when I was making movies earlier, I get to the cutting room and it was too late to, to fix anything. And where I'm in the cutting room and I'm saying, oh my God, these master shots are lethargic. There's too many pauses, there's, there's too many beats, there's too many commas. 
in the in the in in, in the in the tempi of the of just the dialogue. And so I tend to make the actors go faster than they're comfortable acting. And when they're really going up on their lines because they're tripping over the words, that's when I know I've got it. That's really good. <laughs> then when I get to the cutting room, it all sort of syncs up and makes sense to me. Do you actually use that word faster or will you push them? I mean, how will you get, I, I, get I, I usually say faster and funnier. <laughs> you mean the famous F and F? Absolutely, you have to say that. <laughs> Did you find it works always? Yeah, yeah, it always it always works as long as, it <laughs> as, long as they're not improvising what's not been written. Um, but yeah, cool, cool thanks. <laughs> and where do you position yourself, particularly on this film, which may have been different? Well, early on, I I used to operate the camera. So early on, in a lot of my earlier films, I was behind the lens, and then the actors were right next to me. And as I got older and my back got worse and I couldn't do the calisthenics you need to do to be on a Fisher dolly or a movie on a dolly and have the, the head of the camera going up and down and you can feel the L5, L4 twisting and going out of shape. Now, I'm just like, like Jane. I like to be the most comfortable with something over my head with shadow, with a shade, watching a monitor because I don't need to be near the actors when they're acting because... In seconds, I'll walk to them at the end of a take. I don't have to be intimate with them that way. And I'm also getting a chance to see what the the, the, the scenes feel like as a movie. So I'm actually watching a film in a tent. Got it. I don't mind that. No, thank you. Sir. <laughs> oh, cool. Kenneth, when do you know you've got it? Um, well, it's, it's uh, there are lots of different variations on it. I mean, I certainly, I, I like what you were saying Jane, about what Kurosawa said, because there are many times, I don't know if you found it, when people, maybe you or actors have said, that's it, that's the one. And, you know, a week later or a month later, you realize that is not remotely the one. It's, uh, <laughs> take, take, well, you thought it was take one because we were all so excited that morning. Oh, and you could see and the tears rolled down and it was so, and everybody felt it. And we all walked away, and, and, but somehow something wasn't right about it. So I, I've learned to be kind of um, flexible but I had one experience on Belfast where at the end of the movie there's a big close-up of uh, Judy Dench and um, she is a remarkable person for... Uh, she's often downplays her skill as a film actor because she comes from the theatre. Uh, I think she's been nominated for an Oscar eight, eight times since she was 60. Um, she didn't get wow. to... She was, told, she was told early on, your face, your face will never work for movies. So we, uh, we know different. We, her face is the end, the end of our movie. I said to her, look, we've got these lines that are scripted. I think they're okay. I think that they'll work, but would you mind? I know the sun is shining and it's a, it's a big close-up, so it, feels, would, it seems to me that it would be good if you didn't move much. Um, and she, uh, with, with this, this skill acquired through a ton of theatre and, and all of this film work, uh, has allowed her to be very, very free moment to moment, actually, as if every single take was a rehearsal in the theatre. So it can always be different. She throws it away and she'll listen. So I, I kept, I, I said to her, look, so here are some variations I'll throw in on what you could say. If you don't mind, we'll just keep the camera running. Um, if you have an instinct yourself, I'll just shut up and you could say some variation on these lines. It doesn't really matter whether we say all four of these short lines or whether you might say one or two. We'd been going for three or four minutes. She was still very patient. And what I admired enormously was that she was still sort of Mount Rushmore still. So, because she knew she was in, it was so big, the close-up. And in the and it seemed as though every time she did it, it felt if you were watching 
that glass vessel there that it felt like with every take you saw the liquid in the vessel sort of rising. So it just felt as though I was seeing somebody behind the eyes. It was getting richer and thicker and thicker. Anyway, in the end, after a pause, I said, I think we have it, Jude, but if you just want to, in your own time, say it again. So she took a while, didn't move, said it, and then I went, okay, come. come okay, just let me see that one. Let me see that one. Let me hear that one. Okay. Oh, f- no, what is that noise? What is that noise on the soundtrack? And the sound recordist, Denise Yard, said, that is your intake of breath, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and that was me. And when I listened yeah. to it again, it was me going... <gasps> <laughs> and it was just, the, that was the hair from the back of my neck because she'd like, boom, bullseye. She just... So she then just now you know when you got it, when well, you breathe then. in. <laughs> 60 years in, I think it's the first time I knew. <laughs> and where do you position yourself? Well, I, as, as the film reveals, you know, a love of movies from this country and many of the movies about movies had people sitting under the camera. Um, so I, I like to do that. But as you were saying, uh, you know, I like to be flexible. Sometimes the last thing an actor wants is looking at me <laughs> under the camera. So sometimes I'll just double check. Would you like me to be in another room? Would you like me to be physically behind the piece of metal? But I, I, um, so I, I try and I like to be close because that's how I... I grew up watching people being close, you know, in, in movies. I thought that's how they did it in movies, so that's how I started. But now I'll just do what it seems might would get the best result for everybody. Got it. As I was saying, you've all created worlds. Uh, Louis Pasteur, some 200 years ago, the inventor of vaccinations, said that chance favors the prepared mind. I'd like to hear about the pre-production preparations of all of you in terms of creating worlds that don't exist right now. Let's start with you, Kenneth. How were you creating Belfast and particularly how you created that block? And I ask it in, in reference to the clarity of where things are happening on that block, whether the attack is from this side where the house of value is or it's from another side. And I don't think our audience, your audience necessarily gets it, but they do get that it's happening. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how you devise and prepared let's say, in this case, the locations for Belfast at, 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 in, in this time? Well, we started with uh, the in, instinctive idea that, given the, the title and the nature of the story, that we would go to real Belfast. Then COVID occurred. Uh, we went to real Belfast. We, we needed to change a street, a chosen street, which we, we started off with the street that I lived in. Half of it is knocked down, including where my house was. But we went around. We went around on city bikes with our location, uh, production designer, cinematographer and everything, and, and because it's a village city, you can get around everything. So I went to all the places that were real, but we understood that by the time you tried to take satellite dishes and everything else that was 2021 away and possibly move some families out in order to have the street for a while, uh, that actually ultimately that became legally impossible because of COVID. So we couldn't do that. So we then we had 10-year-old Jude Hill, 87-year-old Judy Dench, and the COVID issue. So we decided that we would build in order to fully get behind the idea of shooting from the nine-year-old's point of view, which would physically sometimes involve putting the camera at the same height as the kid himself. So that began, began to make us aware of the heights of various buildings. 
Uh, and in the end, we decided that we would build the street and allow ourselves the flexibility to have all the imagery, whether it was barbed wire or street lamps, that we could have kids dance around and that we could physically move if we needed to do it without the audience being aware of it. To have that kind of flexibility became um, very, very important. And in COVID times, it seemed that the, the preparation seemed, at least from my point of view, to be... Um, the necessitating more specificity than ever. Um, I worked recently with Annette Benning and I asked her, I said, what is the, what's the common characteristic of the great directors you've worked with? She said, well, I'll tell you something. She says, it's not a very sexy word, uh, but organized. They're really organized. I said, so, and what does that lead to? She says, well, that gets you quicker to the fun bit. Uh, when, you know, excitement and, you know, experimentation is possible. Um, and in the, filming in the time of COVID, I had those words in, in my ears was just let's try and organize everything we can because we've got kids' hours, you know, so we couldn't work with the, the young people for so long. We had zonal systems for filming. We had one-way systems. We had limited shooting hours. So being organized in order to get to the point of departure for what you hoped ultimately was going to feel like a happening was more important than ever. So building and controlling actually something that ultimately we wanted to feel very authentic became the curious paradox of how we approached this film. The nature of the interiors uh, are, there's always sort of a three-dimensionality between where there may be a window back here and the, and, and here you're, the, you're in the foreground or sort of characters or the alley that leads in. How was that all designed? Because a lot of the, your movie takes place in their house and, and, and Pa's house. And, it, they, and they really do have a design to them. They don't feel like square spaces. What was this about? Well, I appreciate that. The, um, it was, again, it was going back to the, 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 the nine-year-old's point of view and these tiny houses, because the first time I went back and when my house was still up there, I was amazed it seemed, it seemed so small. And I remember, well, I was very small then. And, and being small, uh, those tiny houses seemed to have their own massive sort of characteristics in the back with an outside loo. And my grandfather's got a weird Willy Wonka kind of, t you know, tinker's workshop full of, just full of stuff. I mean, there's nothing he didn't pick up, ropes, bits of metal. He was trying to make money out of something. Somebody had come to the back door, something be passed across in a brown envelope. I don't know what was going on. And, and, and it became the unofficial men's room as well. That's where in these tiny houses, the men sat out there as if, as if they were allegedly having their private, important male conversation. But the window was open and all the women who were just as, as far away as this table were there making sure they didn't make, do all the usual stupid things they tended to do. Um, but, but, and in that, with the boy, again, this idea of the nine-year-old being central to the way to tell the story was, was letting the actors know that, and the production designer know that I wanted to try and create a frame in which um, we saw what depth there was and the way in which small groups of people related to each other in small places. But from an acting and performance point of view, we often did long uninterrupted takes where I felt I might get the best out of the boy uh, reacting to people and indeed might get the best out of the adults who would be fascinated as they often were by the utter reality of the boy in unrehearsed moments. So much of it was to plan to try and have a visual that could allow a long uninterrupted take in a small space with a large number of people where the desire was not to rehearse but to be a wire or an overlooker or an overhearer um, inside a world that could feel very real. Often we put the camera right outside the back door so very quickly they were unaware of us and for the purposes of this it felt like that was a useful 
influence in the atmosphere of the scene? In the actual spaces that you, you lived in, was were this labyrinth nature of the interiors, or was that the design so you could accomplish this? Well, it was a sort of combination of both. They were both uh, tiny, but you know, your your imagination expanded to fill the vacuum, and in a way, that was also a key to the style of the movie, which at times would be entirely accurate to the small spaces and the tiny world of a you know another beautiful day in the neighborhood that becomes a playground changed into a fortress, uh, becomes something influenced by the boys' attempt to process the revolution that is the arrival of violence that changes everything in the course of a few minutes from something peaceful to something that is now utterly unsettled, and a way of navigating that really only available to the nine-year-old through the medium of movies. That's where he gets his stories from, westerns. Good guys, bad guys, and, and often women you know, protecting and being the warrior queens inside all this unacknowledged but all-powerful. And so um, that also allowed for a visual style that could expand where the boy's imagination expands it in order just to cope. So instead of seeing horrible, vicious intimidation on a Belfast street, to potentially see it as James Stewart and uh, John Wayne in, in, in some kind of confrontation is a way of making sense of it. Because if that happens, someone will come in and a good guy will win. And, you know, and maybe somebody will ride off to the sunset and I'll be at the end of the street going, come back, Shane, come back. Um, so the, 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 all of that sort of, you know, all spun out of deciding to try as much as possible seeing it from his point of view. Got it, got it. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Stephen, you're creating um, another time and not relying, I think, on just CGI for your world, but actually making it real. And you've got major streets that you're, I guess, some of them real and some of them that you created. Um, you have a major locations in terms of the where Maria lives. You have a major location in terms of docks. Talk about the creating the, the time in these spaces. Well, New York is certainly a principal character in the story. And New York in 1957, during the Robert Moses slum uh, relocation project, where they tore basically the, the west side down from the west side highway to Columbus from basically 58th Street over to 72nd Street and San Juan Hill, and all the residents were kicked out. And they, that's where they built the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. So we were telling a story where the sharks and the jets were actually fighting over a pile of rubble. At the end of the jet song, the very first really song in the picture, they actually run up and uh, victorious that they've, the jets have, you know, together as a gang, run to the top of a rubble pile to, to claim victory, uh, an empty, hollow victory, certainly. Um, and all that was created uh, in Patterson, New Jersey, in a large parking lot, where Adam Stockhausen, the production designer, and his art directors recreated uh, New York in 1957. The, in other words, the 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 you know the the buildings that were you know toppled, and half of them were up and half of them were down. You could see where people took their paintings off the walls, and there's a little shadow where the painting hung for decades on the wall, and that was all the details were were so amazing uh, that Rena and um, and Adam had 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 done. And a lot of the film was shot on the streets of, of, of Harlem. Uh, uh, we shot in the actual air shafts in Harlem. That's not a set. Uh, uh, tonight, uh, the song Tonight is shot on a set at Steiner Studios. Adam Stockhausen recreated a portion, a five-story, yeah. entire portion, four sides of that air shaft. 
but the wider shots were done night for night in the actual air shaft. Uh, some, some, you know, in, in, in Harlem. We shot in the Bronx. We shot in Queens. We shot all over the place uh, because we were trying to, you know, recreate the way it looked in the pictures we were researching before we ever started uh, the story, the, the, the production. And New York uh, obviously has changed. It's certainly changed. The streets, the street lights are painted differently. The, there, there's, uh, there's crosswalks where there were no crosswalks before. The only real digital work in the entire movie is taking out the crosswalks, is, is, is coloring the, the traffic lights, restoring them to the way they were in 57, and also taking out the tens of thousands of air conditioners that are sticking out of windows and, and, and satellite dishes on rooftops. And, and so most of the, produ- the, the VFX budget was spent getting rid of the things we couldn't physically. When I made Rages of the Lost Ark before the digital era, we were shooting... In Tunisia, we were shooting actually in Karawan, in Tunisia, and we had the art department had to go to six thousand dwellings and pay everybody to take their television aerials off the rooftops because there was no way to get rid of it otherwise. Uh, so you know, so so you know, which, which thank ILM <laughs> which, and all, all of their breakthroughs in the digital arts in order to give all of us a chance to make period pictures again. Which of the locations it was the most challenging for you? in terms of what you were shooting, um, things you were creating or the reality of the streets? No, the reality of the streets was most challenging because America was shot in the middle of the summer when it was 95, 97 degrees, a heat index to 108. And Paul Taswell had done fantastic costumes, but they didn't have air conditioners built into them. And so the dancers were absolutely dying, and yet they'd come back for take eight and take nine and take ten with smiles on their faces. And then we would mop them down, they'd go back for take 11. It was incredible, their tenacity and their love for dancing and singing and performing. But that was the toughest thing, was shooting in New York in the summer, in the outside and, and with all the layers of costumes. In the, in the, in the uh, Maria's apartment in the fire escape, in that particular song when they first meet, yes. that's a very complex fire escape in terms of gratings. And I'm interested in how you decided to, whether you walked on and said, oh, now this is how I'm going to shoot it because you've given me this, or whether you had a discussion about, yes, I want to make it difficult so that he's going to have to climb over here and go over here, that whole... You you know, I found that in storyboarding. When I was storyboarding and I found that I wanted to keep Tony and Maria away from each other as much as possible. I wanted to echo the fact that Tony had spent a year in prison and was out now on parole. I I wanted to show that there were obstacles between that love story. And, and so, you know, I kind of designed it when I, when I did all the drawings that once he gets up to Maria, the, the grating is locked and he can't get onto the actual fire escape. And then he's got a kind of, you know, trapeze walk his way. He had a big safety wire on him, don't worry. <laughs> uh, he was fine, but he had a trapeze walk all the way to another balcony when they start the song. And then when they, and then as the song progresses, he sings to her through the heavy grating, then he sings to her through the bars of the side of the fire escape, and eventually, when the song, when Stephen Sondheim's words gave me reason to let him vault the, 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 you know, you know, the, the, the side of the, of the fire escape, and actually, and then I put the actual ladder between them. So now they're singing between a ladder, so nothing is letting them come together until the Sondheim lyrics invite the final moment where they're actually able to come together and sing as a duet. And so that was all done in storyboarding. Very impressive because it's very effective. Now I see how 
it got got designed. That's what I was sort of ask, asking you. In terms of of docs, since there's so much in docs, talk about uh, the design of docs and how you you know decided to do what you did with it. Adam Stockhausen, you know, just decided it should be very colorful. He decided that you know that the that the linoleum tile or the tiles on the floor should look like a checkerboard, and there should be colors with all the products in the. You know, candy and the candy jars, and he wanted to really create a, an upbeat place to both play against the kind of ennui of a place like that that looks happy, but in fact is going to lead to the most tragic moment in the story, which is essentially Anita's lie to Valentina about about Tony being dead, about Maria being dead. And so and Adam made a tremendous contribution to this film. I mean, Christy Acosta, who is just an extraordinary, exceptional producer, was able to bring some of the best opportunities to me to find people that really loved the story and really wanted to make a cut. So I, I let all the divisions really kind of present to me their vision. I'm not so dictatorial about that. I really, I hire somebody for what they can give me, not for what I can, I can, I can give them to give me. That doesn't make any sense. Yes. And he just made a tremendous contribution to that candy store. There, just one more question about docs. There's the pinball machine. There's the sliding ladder, both of which you use in terms of when he's seeing something's coming. And I'm interested, did you add these elements? Is this also something preconceived? Or were you walking and seeing, wow, I can now use it, this? It's, 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 it, I don't want to take too much time up here um, because it's very complicated. But... I've never done a musical before, so to fold in song and dance, choreography, which I've done just little tastes of in 1941, I had a dance in Ready Player One, there was a zero gravity dance, and, and certainly at the beginning of Temple of Doom, there was a dance, under which was George Lewis's ideas, because he said, you've always wanted to make a musical, let's start Temple of Doom with a dance. That was his idea, because he knew I wanted to make a musical someday, and he, he, he gifted that idea to me. Um, but the rehearsal process was essential, and I my iPhone was my my companion, because I basically, as Justin Peck was putting all these dances on their feet, I was running around finding my shots with an iPhone. I would sit on one of those little scooter chairs with the casters, and they'd be moving me all through the dancers, and I'd be looking at my shots, and I'd be cutting them together to the music. And so my trial and error period, it was really, I learned how to shoot this big, big sort of production based on three and a half months of rehearsal, which I couldn't have done without, I couldn't have made the movie without the rehearsal. And moments like that where Justin was having Tony in, you know, singing, you know, singing, you know, Something's Coming to Valentina. There were just moments where the music felt propulsive. And so I said to Adam Stockhausen, there's one moment here, it'd be so great, and it's just this measure of music that Tony, if he jumps on one of those ladders that moves on casters, and he could take a ride to the end of the shelf, and then when the music accelerates the other way, he takes a, a ride back in the other direction. And, th- and the pinball machine I put in because I wanted him to, at a certain point, the music leap on the pinball machine and pull the thing and get the pinball numbers to light up behind him. So those were all ideas I had based on watching these dances, you know, you know, being orig- originated by Justin Peck, the choreographer. Got it, got it. Wow, thank you. Jane, you've cre- you create an entire other world in 1925. Uh, the house itself is an amazing structure, and both interior and exterior, as well as the barn, and of course all of the areas that you found in the in the I, I'll call them the mountains. What was your process of creating these spaces? Um, I was also the writer of this project, so um, I had some time to think about what 
what it was going to mean. And I was working off an amazing novel by Thomas Savage, probably the same name as the film. Um, he, he wrote his uh, book, which was semi-autobiographical, I'd say, that it was also fictionalised, but um, so he was around in 1925. And uh, he lived on a ranch with his mother, um, very similar to the story, uh, with two brothers, and the older brother was, um, I guess, the inspiration for Phil. Um, so we knew that this ranch existed somewhere. And um, Tanya Sagechi and my amazing producer um, and friend um, made it her business to do this research, and she found this uh, professor of English in Dillon, which is the town nearby, and he was writing a biography about uh, Thomas Savage. So we asked him if he would take us on a sort of tour, and he was uh, really excited, and we were excited. <laughs> and, uh, um, so we did this whole Montana trip, and we also did what was going to be, you know, a, you know, a scouting of the area anyway because we were at that point not sure where we were going to try and shoot it. But we understood it was probably going to be too expensive in Montana. However, I was hopeful that maybe the ranch would be um, something we could use, you know. And I was thinking like, you know, I, wonder, I wonder if I'm going to see the dog there, you know, <laughs> the whole deal. Anyway, we got there and there was no house. The house had been removed. And we also visited where the house um, was currently suspended over a great big puddle. And it was a kind of kit home. So it wasn't what I was imagining or, or what the book imagined either. And that's that disconnect between, you know, what people live and then what they um, build in fiction. Um, so it was a really important moment to go, okay, um, fiction's better than truth in this situation. Um, <laughs> And, yeah, I also said to them, and where's the dog, you know, because I imagined it was some shape or something that had seen something. And they said, no, no, there's no dog. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so... <laughs> um, actually, it reminds me of something Annie Prue said to me when we went to see her because she wrote the afterward about the book. And she said, the thing you have to understand, everyone needs to understand, is that... Uh, the West doesn't exist. It's a myth. It's just a myth. And, you know, we get to see that actually um, when you consider that some of the very best Westerns were made in Spain um, with Sir Giuliani and Clint Eastwood. Um, it's always a mythic space really. And um, we began to understand that, you know, we could maybe make the same mythic space with the landscape that we had in New Zealand for a lot less money. <laughs> um, we were with Jack Fisk at the time because he was just helping us out. We hadn't um, landed on a designer. And um, he very cleverly showed photographs from New Zealand that we already had um, to the scout in Montana and said, where do you think we can find this place here? And um, the scout looked at it and he said, oh, I think that's a bit south, further south from here. <laughs> well, he was, he was right, it was a lot further south. <laughs> <laughs> and that made us feel like, oh, well, you know, he's a scout, so that's pretty good that um, the New Zealand landscape that we were imagining could stand for Montana actually, you know, would work. Um, then we used a lot of, um, a lot, a lot of photographic references 
an immense amount of photographic references. I mean, I've got a, like a stack of them that's so big and, and made duplicate folders so that everybody in every department could have them. And um, then, of course, I had my favourites as well. So, I, I mean, I use references from the time and things like I'm really surprised you like wearing, seeing um, cowboys wearing striped jumpers, you know. That just that's not part of the normal mythic Hollywood cowboys kit. And, I mean, also even within the novel, Phil Burbank is joking a lot about um, the cowhands who spend all their money uh, buying clothes from those um, ordering systems, you know, when you order your clothes and, like, spending everything, all their hard-earned cash on special cowboy shirts which are modelled on the cowboys now in the movies. So they were starting to quote the movies you know, mm-hmm. at that point. And, I mean, I really love that aspect of um, the 1925 um, part of the story. I mean, I'm a cowboy fan too. <laughs> <laughs> I used to play those games when I was a kid, so it was a, it was a special thrill. And it, actually there's a, um, in Hollywood, there's a, a museum for the cowboys what? here too, and I spent a long time in there anyway. A lot of, a lot of research and just enjoying and the details that really landed for me and also, of course, from the novel. And then um, the challenge was building the, the, the house. Did um, you know the kind of space that you wanted, for example, that stairway yeah. in the house plays yeah. such a role as well as the rooms upstairs as well as the enormous living room? And yeah. How did that all evolve for you? Well, Grant Major, my designer, is really an extraordinary man. He also worked with me on Angel at My Table. It's his first job and um, Lord of the Rings. So he's just this quiet Kiwi legend. And um, he got a lot of different references as well and we looked at different houses and we saw how they would look and then they, you know, digitally put them into the landscape that we'd selected. And there was a lot of decisions to be made and had to be made quickly because we had to build, you know, if we wanted to, like it was August, we had to start building or something and or getting the permissions and it was very high wind factors in that area and engineers had to sign off it. So there was a a lot of difficulties, a lot of anxiety about whether the building would really happen in time. Um, And then, you know, we'd be standing out in the paddock going like, I guess it's here, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Going like, oh, there must be something more technical, you know, some other way of knowing exactly what. And, you know, I'd have the DPRE there and I was going, is this going to be right for the light? You know, I don't know. Let's put the, you know, barn over there and then let's, um, you know, we've, we've got to have all the cattle yards as well that had to be made. And um, I found it actually quite scary, scary. signing off. Scary, yes. Because? Because if you got it wrong, you can't shift these big things, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like you have to have the relationship between, you know, what you're looking out the window and then to the barn, like how far is that? You know, well, obviously you can cheat that somewhat, but you want it to feel around about right, even for the actors, for everyone to have that sort of sense mm. of capacity of believing in this world. Are you using um, images that may be storyboards for your designers so that they know, like, for example, you were talking about specifically the relationship to the barn and the second floor window when Phil looks out and he sees her drinking and that's a very specific relationship. And I'm wondering whether you've already preconceived this and and are communicating that or is it evolving for you to say, oh, well, now I see this space, that's how I'll shoot it. 
There's a little bit of both, I think. You know, like there's certainly relationships that we needed and sightlines that we needed that we could tell from the script. Um, and actually Ari Wagner, my DOP, made a massive list of all the sightlines that we needed so we can go around and check them all. Um, and then there was like happen chances that were, you know, like rhythms of the window that, you know, like opens the movie that, you know, like that you discover how to do it later. I mean, I haven't got the sort of brain that can figure everything out in advance. So it's um, a little bit of finding things and mm. also um, asking for things. And then other people like Grant Major and his amazing team, you know, offering stuff. I mean, the fountain in the front is like um, our salute to Jack Fisk. That was his idea. <laughs> the, I'm wondering that the, the tree that gets climbed through um, yeah, the, that, the sacred yeah, river place. Emerge? Well, um, it's in the book. Um, you, you know, it's very much the same in Montana. I mean, willows grow near the rivers everywhere, and we we specialise in rivers in New Zealand, and like, we've got heaps of them. And it's something called the New Zealand Death, which was death by drowning, because they come up and down so much, and that's a very you know worrying thing because you're not really sure whether you're going to have the full river or the dry river or so one day you scout and it's like muddy and I said, oh, look, hey, what's happened to our New Zealand rivers? It's supposed to be really, you know, mountain clear, beautiful blue and it's just like muddy and I go, oh, my God, it's really going to be difficult. But you planned on snow, yes? The snow that you have, you planned on. Um, well, thank <laughs> you for believing in it. <laughs> um, the snow did happen in the summer on the on the tops of the hills, but um, it just very kindly happened the days that we needed it. Um, but we did fill in a lot with, um, yeah, digitally. And, and and the two towns, the, the, the yeah beach and um, the other town, which is standing, and I guess for um, Dylan, yeah. Um, well, in Otago, there's a really cute, what they call historical centre. I think all towns have them. And it's um, really, I, I adored it. I thought it was just perfect. And think, oh, my God, that's, that's a real gift. Um, and I think New Zealand has not really um, been colonised that long. It's one of the uh, later colonised countries. So we do have some, a lot of our um, historical centres and things are in pretty good order and of the appropriate period too. And, you know, we, we had a great railway station, Dunedin, so we went there and um, and we had to build the other town, um, which we which we did mostly digitally, but we had the red mill is to hinge it off um, and then everything was taken in interiors to a stage in Auckland. But we did... I did ask for some of the, um, like the cowboy's kitchen to be um, real so that we could do some inside-outside work that would just help everybody and, and the kitchen was also there on the set. And then there was the barn, of course, which was a you know, fantastic area for Phil and it was his, like, his place to remember Bronco Henry and one, you know, one of the difficulties when you're adapting a story like this and you have a character like Bronco Henry who's really overpowering present but he's a ghost and it's like you know I have God and they're describing it all but you you know you, that's not going to work in a film so you have to try and figure visual ways to trigger it um, and I had the idea of a shrine with a little lamp and a plaque uh, that was in the barn and that you know could be referred to by Phil and cleaned and 
So the, it, the, the saddle was an addition or was the saddle also in the book? The saddle uh, was Brock not um, in the book in the shrine. Got it. And um, I can't remember <laughs> I'm not sure that the Bronco Henry saddle was what he sat on. I'm not even sure of, yeah. Because it's very powerful. I'm so confused by what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I've got that. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Jane. Denis, you're creating an entire new world. None of us have been there. Well, I think a couple of people have been there, but not really a lot of us. <laughs> how, how did you go about starting it so that it had your visual imagery and what was the process of creating the world? Yeah, the, or my, the worlds, I should say, because I've got three my, of them. My colleagues had the reference, historical reference. Me, I was like in the void. And the only thing that I can relate to was the early dreams that I had when I read the book as a kid. Very visceral reading. And uh, to do so, what I did is that uh, there's a part of the process that uh, for me uh, is very fundamental, which is storyboarding. And storyboarding is, uh, even when I write the screenplay myself, is, is something that is closer to writing than to shooting, in fact. It's a way for me to interpret, first interpretation of the screenplay. I will storyboard the whole, the whole movie and then very often rewrite after I storyboard because there's so many ideas. I mean, the runner was almost entirely uh, rewritten after uh, Roger Dickens and I storyboarded the movie. There, there are so many new ideas that are coming from the images. And I also, when I was young, when I started to dream to be a director, I didn't have a camera. We were drawing movies. <laughs> I had my best friend and I, we were like drawing the movies that we were dreaming to do. And so uh, where I'm going is that the birth of Dune, the way to approach this, I said to myself, I need to focus and try to go back to those early images, those, those vivid images I had when I, I read the book as a kid. And so I said to my storyboard artist that I, I made most of my movies with Samu Deki, a close friend. So close friend that I can fall asleep in front of him. I mean, that, that kind of uh, strong intimacy. My wife was with us today keeps saying that I speak three languages. I speak uh, French, English, and Udeki. I mean, it's like the way I, I, my way of communicating, communicating with this storyboard artist is so, um, we are so close that uh, it can uh, very quickly draw what I, I have in mind. It's a very, uh, very strange relationship that I developed through many years with him. So the idea is I forbid him. I said, I forbid you to go into, into the internet. I want absolute no references. We won't talk about other movies. We won't talk about painters. We won't talk about photographers. We, I want to try to reach those images. And so the, the movie was uh, um, all the design, most of the design and, and of, uh, can be props, can be sets, can be uh, the spirit of uh, a lot of things was born into those early storyboard sessions that uh, try to bring back those images from the... How did you communicate the three worlds? Because Arrakis is different from the Atreides, this is different from the Harkonnen. How did you, as you began communicating with your storyboard artist, what were the factors that began to come into your mind to make distinctions between these worlds? But it was all, it's all those civilizations, it was their relationship with nature. The, the real subject and the real character in, in Dune is nature, Mother Nature, and I tried to do the same as a, we, the way we approach the movie, and and it's just they all have all those tribes, if I can say, have different relationship with with the way they deal with nature, and that's the way I, I differentiate, differentiate them too in the process. 
And what were they? Can you can you articulate the differences? Because but, I mean, it's like uh, the Fremen world is a Fremen that, uh, that is of of course uh, uh, in deep um, harmony. That is uh, embracing, emulate, try to to breathe breathe with with nature. So that the way, and that's something that we will see more in the second part. Uh, uh, that that kind of uh, uh, close proximity, the 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 colonizer, the, the colon- that are coming and that built Arakin, built a city that is designed to to uh, survive to the earth nature. It's like a, a resistance. It's a, some people that are not meant to be there and that impose themselves and uh, uh, but need to find uh, artificial protection in order to... So the design of the city of Arakin was like a, an, art, an, an architecture of survival. And, and uh, the architecture of uh, uh, the Arcanans, it's a world that is totally disconnected from nature. It's a plastic world. It's a world that is totally artificial. It's a dead world. And, uh, and that's what we, that, yeah, I would say. Got it. And for where, where the Duke of the Harkonnen sort of exists, that space that he's in, we first see it with all this kind of mist around him. And uh, what, how did that all evolve? This is a Harkonnen the, the, you know, um, in that world. Um, do you remember? This is Saskars when he's introduced. Donald oh. Saskars. But the thing is that uh, the Baron in the book, uh, the book aged very well, in my humble opinion. But the ba- bad guys, I mean, they are really every time they are a caricature of twisting, twisting mustache, uh, uh, <laughs> and 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 uh, uh, yeah, I, I I did feel that I had to do a lot of, of work to do on my villain. And and uh, and on the shape as well. I didn't want him to look like a, a, a joke or a caricature or a fat baby or something. I didn't want. I wanted to I to create a threat. I wanted to create fear. I wanted to to uh, create a taciturn character that uh, uh, where we will feel a high intelligence, uh, a paranoid character that uh, will calculate all the time and that you uh, would be afraid of just by his presence. I wanted to create a, a, a silhouette. Very specific. So that was designed again with my storyboard artist. I mean, it's something that uh, we found that ape-like, gorilla shape of the Baron uh, Sam, who, who finally found it and, and then uh, gave it to the art department. And uh, um, I love the prosthetic of the Baron so much. I thought it was so beautiful, naked that uh, I decided to rewrite uh, uh, in the storyboard process, to rewrite the first scene to see him naked and, and to invent this idea of a steam bath so I can see Stan uh, Skarsgård uh, uh, in his full grand door. You know? I, just, I was just in love with the naked Baron. And, and, and um, yeah, that's why. And, and Stellan too, he, he really loved the, uh, the result of it. Yeah, we, did, we didn't... Um, surprisingly, I, I was expecting to to retouch the Baron a lot in CG, but we didn't. It was so well done that they were really. A, a, it was a masterwork with the. the Truly, um, one more about the vehicles because the vehicles, in fact, in, in like an arrival, are quite exceptional. We don't expect to see what you are imagining, and it gives us another way of looking at another world. Um, 
Can you talk about the ornithopters and how they, uh, these fabulous flying vehicles uh, um, evolved? Yeah, the thing is that it's a, a book, uh, sorry, the book Dune is, is not about technology or gadget that much. It's really about the triumph of the human spirit. It's really about the, the, the uh, for those who know the book, they, 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 they got rid of the of computers. I mean, it's really, everything is about the power of the human mind. So I tried to keep the technology, as Frank Herbert did, I tried to keep the technology in the background. Or if some elements like the ornithopter, for instance, will, will be prominent in some scenes, they will look very familiar. They will not be in the way that, that I wanted my mother to believe that those things were flying for real. And that so I, I really put emphasis on the physicality of it and, and, and the, to bring some kind of realism uh, 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 very early on, we decided to, that we will go in the direction of insects. In the book, they are described as, as birds, but I, I thought it would look silly. So I, 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 I wanted something more muscular, and uh, I went uh, insisted that to my VFX crew that we'll need those eye-vibrating wings. So it, it feels, I wanted it to feel as close to an helicopter as possible. That, so it's a, so it, you don't think about it. It flies for real. You don't think it's just you focus on the characters and what they are going through. Yeah. Got, it. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. There's so much more to talk about even design for all of your films. But, Paul, this is your past. Um, the Valley, I don't think, is, is what it was in the time you were doing this in 1973. What, how did you find places like, I don't know if the Tale of the Cock still exists, but the houses of the of uh, your major characters and how did you find these and create them? And were they all real, by the way? <clears throat> yeah, they were all real. I mean, it's not it's not so bad, you know. The valley, the shapes, the shape of the valley. Oh, <laughs> 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 no shame here. Um. I don't know. I um, I live on one side of the valley. I live in Tarzana. My daughter goes to school in Studio City, so every morning um, drive her to school, and then drop her off, and then start scouting. You know, I mean, really <laughs> on the on the way back, and trying to find stuff that fits. I mean, I was working from a story that was a part was my memory of of growing up there at the time, and then another part, the memories and stories of a friend of mine. So there was a real um, waterbed store that I had as a reference. It was on Ventura Boulevard right near, you know, Balboa. Great. Okay. So that's what it looks. still there. It's a tanning salon now. Anybody wants to go. Um, and the Tale of the Cock was a sort of other, um, was a place that I went to as a kid. It was a great restaurant. There was two of them. There was one on La Cienega and there was one on Coldwater in Ventura. And it's long gone, unfortunately. It was sort of bulldozed in the late 80s. But, you know, if, if you, you, know, you know the valley like I know the valley, you know where to go find um, a, the bones of something like that. So um, it was the mission of going with uh, my production designer, Flo, and Adam, uh, my AD, and taking a phone and, and, and mapping out the movie, you know, the joy of that, I mean, I think I probably have about 60, 70% of the movie with the two of them playing Gary and Alana, you know, on my phone. And, <laughs> you know, and that really, like, our, and the joy of scouting and taking that time 
and messing around and going into one bathroom stall and trying something like this. Okay, this will be great. Let's go to another one or getting permission to go to a high school and walking around the high school and shooting it and trying to time it all out and really just mapping the whole thing out, which we were doing anyway, but then became double, triple important to shoot during the COVID of it all because on a limited budget, you really want to know your frame and know, well, what are we seeing? You know, let's make sure that we aren't bringing more cars and more people than we need. You know, let's really get this mission focused um, so that we can accomplish it. Um, yeah. Do you remember any locations as being more challenging to actually find? Um, no, there's all, I mean, I, again, you know, I think Stephen, it, it's like the period film, it's crosswalks and, and stoplights and, you know, it's crazy. Um, that is the biggest thing. Um, no, nothing was challenging to find. Um, you, if long, you know, the thing that can happen, um, when you're making a film, I think, Certain location managers have a book and they present you the same old locations, you know, and they just kind of want to get it over with as fast as they can sometimes. (laughs) They're like, there's there's six of these houses. Just please, just pick one. (laughs) And, you know, that won't do. You know, you kind of, you have to kind of, you just drive around, knock on doors and try to find those things and find things that are stuck in time. It's one of the, you know, great joys of being able to make a film in the place where you live is that there's just this, the route home from dropping my daughter off at school was filled with limitless possibilities and, and, and alleyways that I'd never been down. But I've been down most of them at this point. I lived there for 50 years. Do you sometimes, as, as, as Kenneth does, look for a certain kind of space? I'm thinking specifically of a scene where I guess Gary ends up Walking out and getting in the car and driving away, and Alana goes after him. And it's it's a it's just a fair complex move in terms of getting up from the table, going around a corner, coming back into room, going out. Do you, do you look for that? I mean, or is that oh wow, I found this now I'm going to sort of stage it that way? What where's that dynamic? You know, I don't know. There's those times when you're writing something and you get something stuck in your mind that you want to try to get make happen, and I think the trick is knowing when to abandon that because something else is right in front of your face that is like it's screaming at you like, dummy, look at me. I'm standing right here. There's a great shot. So it's that kind of combination of, of, of attack to, to tell the story in a certain way but, 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 but openness to what might be there. And by the way, you know, that is a, that's a great... Um, it's a great way to work. I mean, I've worked the other way too, you know, thinking of working with Jack Fisk, you're creating a world and they're you're like, that is, it is nerve wracking. You're like, wait, from the ground up? I don't want to do, like, I don't like, it's, <laughs> I want to I be able to walk in someplace and be lucky enough that the sun is coming through the window in a certain way when you're great, let's make sure we're back here at two o'clock because that's when it looks good. You know, to really map out a schedule um, to these locations as well, be open to what they what they provide naturally. Um, you know, you always like a location better when you walk in and the sun is coming through the window. You know, <laughs> you get you're like, this is what we want. You know, um, or that you know, or, or or just how often you walk into a location that's fantastic and you and you say to the family, please don't touch anything, <laughs> and then they 
clean the whole place up by the time you get there, you know. <laughs> Did the John Peters house, um, where was that? John Peters uh, house was a house that I was aware of. Uh, it's up in Balboa. For any of you people that live anywhere near Encino, if you keep going up Balboa, at the end of the street there is a house that Lyle Wagner built um, in the early 70s mm. in a kind of classic Valley Tudor style. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Very popular uh, for Southern California at a certain time, and um, we they um, we were in a situation where we uh, we found the house, and a guy had bought it and was refurbishing it, so it was kind of half gutted, half complete. And we said, you know, would you mind waiting and pausing this, and we can actually kind of build a bedroom in the style that we want. The bones are all there, and and he was gracious enough to let us do that. So we we kind of had. It was a kind of a mix of a of set built within a... And, you, and, and it was on a hill so that it did play into where the truck is going to go. I yeah. Think. No, it was on a hill. Um, and those all those hills are where I live in Tarzana. So that's great. You know, you know putting your kids to bed and going to scout at 9 o'clock just down the road is... <laughs> I rec- highly recommend it. It's great. You know? <laughs> You're back home by 10 o'clock and you've got the locations. You're like, okay... <laughs> Thanks for listening to part one of this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of the Theatrical Feature Film Symposium on our website at dga.org slash events, and also on our YouTube channel. Be sure to download next week's episode, where our five Theatrical Feature Film nominees will continue their conversation. Past episodes of The Director's Cut are available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 